Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, we got a lot to get through, at least I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really took advantage of the second half of my Christmas break um, and watched, uh, well, I watched eight movies in seven days. I guess that's not that great. Um, but, you know, I went to parties and stuff, too. I'm really, yeah, pop- yeah. I'm really popular. You uh, saw so. more movies than I, well, sorry. You saw more movies you can talk about than, right. than I saw. Um so the first thing I'll start with, a uh, movie that uh, comes out at the end of January, I'm very excited to tell people about Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space, which is uh, an adaptation of um, an H.P. Lovecraft short story, which I didn't realize is the same H.P. Lovecraft short story that has served as the adaptation for the uh, late 80s young Will Wheaton vehicle, The Curse. I don't know if you ever saw that one. I did not. But about, yeah, it was about 10, 15 minutes into Color Out of Space, I was like, I know this. I know the, I know what this story is. And yeah, it's the same uh, same thing. Apparently, it's been adapted into film uh, a number of times in, hmm. in short and long forms and different titles. But uh, this one stars um, uh, Nicholas Cage uh, is the the father, and, and uh, Jolie um, Richardson is the is the mother. But really, the um, the the main stars are the are the two kids uh no, most notably um Madeline Arthur as the the eldest daughter of the family anyway this a uh, family of five they live, they live on a farm um uh also making an appearance is Corianka Kilcher okay. from uh the new world and hostiles oh um and Tommy Chong <laughs> all right it's um, a that's a fun cast yeah he well he plays a uh uh paranoid hermit which is kind of <laughs> i could see it yeah <laughs> um and uh yeah they live on this this farm they're not uh an unhappy family but they're not exactly an ideal family the daughter wants to leave the um uh nicholas cage feels like a failure because he wanted to be an artist but he inherited his father's farm and moved his family to the country and julie richardson is frustrated because she's trying to carry on her career online but the the remoteness of the of their setting is is not making that uh that easy so there's they still get along they're they're not like a family that's falling apart but there's a lot of tensions underneath that all kind of boil up when uh a meteor from space lands on the farm and infects the water and drives them all crazy and eventually starts uh physically mutating them Mm -hmm. um and uh, if that sounds unpleasant, it is. But uh, unlike The Curse, which is a thoroughly unpleasant movie in so many ways, uh, Color Out of Space is also very, very beautiful in a dark, uh, almost you don't want to look too long because you're afraid what it'll do to you type of way, which is oh, a okay. very, it's a better H.P. Lovecraft, I think, adaptation um, in, in that sense. It's, um, it's very psychedelic. And when it gets horrific, uh, Richard Stanley does not hold back. Uh, it gets uh, truly horrific. I literally may never, never be able to see Julie Richardson the same way again. Uh, oh, <laughs> I don't want to rob myself of that. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's an intense and sometimes deeply scary, uh, unsettling um, uh, experience that uh, I highly recommend. Uh, seeing and seeing it big and loud if you can. Okay. All right. Moving on to movies. So you'll notice in my like trying to catch up on the stuff I missed from the year, I'm going 
after Color Out of Space, you'll notice the rest of the time that I'm going like chronologically based on what the release date. Oh, interesting. So we're going all the way back to January um, and Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird. Um, uh, a, a movie that I always like Steven Soderbergh movies and this one's no uh, exception. It's um, uh, it, it stars Andre Holland and friend of the show Bill Duke has a, a, a notable role right. um, in which he's a uh, runs a charity basketball camp hmm. uh, in which he's like a, a hard ass. Um, Makes sense. But also like a religious. Um, but he's like, he's coaching all the kids at the camp. And uh, uh, this isn't the religious part that comes at a different part. But he, he says, uh, he says, all right, everybody, let's take a break. And by a break, I mean, you run around in circles until I get tired. <laughs> Um, he's great. He's really great. In Does the movie. he do? Because uh, I love the way Soderbergh used Bill Duke in the Limey. He's only in one scene. No, he's in this one a bunch. Uh, okay, yeah. He, um, but uh, basically, it takes place weirdly. I watch these out of order, but Uncut Gems takes place chronologically at the end of the 2011-2012 NBA season. Hmm. High Flying Bird takes place at the beginning of the 2011-2012 right. because I don't know. I don't know if you remember Tyler, but that was the season that was delayed. The start was delayed because of uh, contract disputes. Like it was essentially a strike. They don't call it that a strike sounds because familiar, yeah, uh, yeah, it's happened um, in, a, in a number of sports. It happens in hockey like almost every time. There's maybe that's what I'm thinking of because that's the only sport I hear about. Because oh, because uh, uh, yeah. you, um, but yeah, I have it in the NBA, uh, and it and it so it takes place against the backdrop of this these real events. Um, uh, of the of the players and the and the team owners um not being able to come to terms on a new cba continuing business agreement um and so sort of creates a it creates a fictional story in which andre Holland's character is a, an agent to the number one draft pick of of the year who's now in like a bind because he's spent a bunch of money he didn't have yet and now doesn't have because he doesn't get paid until uh, they start playing um and then uh oh what's her name from the wire uh kima wilson is that her name that sounds right to me um she plays or another is it williams maybe maybe williams i don't recall in any case she plays another lawyer who represents the uh the 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 team owners um and uh um kyle mclaughlin plays a representative of the nba uh and it's a it's a it's a really it's a really like it has that Soderbergh thing of being like kind of light on its feet, but like unexpectedly weighty at times too. But sometimes I also feel like not weighty enough. It has a, it has a sort of scheming heist type quality. That is the type of movie that Steven Soderbergh can make in his sleep. Yes. And parts of high flying bird kind of feel like he did make it in his sleep. Mm. Um, you've got a, like, I, I keep naming the cast because that's what is really the, Oh, and you've got Zazie beats as well. Um, yeah. in the cast, the, the cast is really what makes the movie, the movie sing. Um, it, it does ultimately feel a little bit slight and it also kind of feels, wait, I, who, we, who are you thinking of from the wire? I don't know. The woman, uh, Sonia son, Sonia son. That's, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Was Kima her character's name? That might be, yeah, that might be who I'm thinking of. Yeah. Oh, now you got to look that up. Yeah, I am. See what her character's name was on, on the wire. Was it Kima? I'm looking. Hang on. Oh, it sh- yeah. Uh, Shakima, Kima, Greggs. Kima Greggs. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't know where I got the W last name. I don't know where I, yeah. Okay. Sorry. All right. Um, 
but I also I, I I also feel like the movie also clearly has something to say about the relationship between professional athletes, especially especially professional black athletes and white owners. And sometimes I feel like there's too much. The movie is either really on the nose or it's not really going into that. Hmm. Um, But maybe that's also me coming from uh, a, you know, a a, a white person's background and maybe not picking up on certain things, but Steven Soderbergh is white too. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Yeah. I, 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 um, I'm, uh, I, I, I felt like I either wanted, I wanted more in some ways, but I still, it's still a really good movie. I don't know why I'm complaining. It's because it's the end of the year. And so all these movies that I'm watching are things that people have like put on, like people that I care about have put on, not care about emotionally, but people whose opinions I care about have put on their lists of the best movies of the year. So if a movie is good, but isn't one of the best movies of the year, suddenly no. I start focusing on what I didn't like about it. Cause high flying bird is really good. Is high flying bird, the kind of film that could be, a, that could address that stuff. You know what I mean? Like there are I, some I, movies that are just kind of fun and you're like, well, why aren't they addressing this? Like, well, because it's an action movie. They don't have time. You know, is it no, a situation it's where they, I think designed to okay. address that stuff. Okay. So um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be out of place if they were to incorporate that more, more overtly. Yeah. And sometimes they do. I, I don't know. It felt kind of, kind of back and forth on that, but maybe there's stuff I'm not picking up on. Okay. Anyway. Um, and then I watched a movie that I intentionally skipped at the time. Cause it looked like the kind of movie I don't like. Okay. Then it started showing up on some lists. So I watched it and I realized, yeah, it's most of the kind of movie I don't like, but sometimes I'm harder on those movies than I ought to be. And there are some good things in it. I watched a movie called Paddleton. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, Mark Duplass and Ray Romano mm-hmm. play, uh, neighbors who are, uh, you know, middle-aged single men who are each other's best friend. Um, but in the way of like closed off, men you know especially right. closed off not cool men you right. know um they're they watch movies together they eat pizza together but they don't ever talk about their emotions which yeah. is uh how yeah. a so lot of us battleship pretensions yeah, yeah. <laughs> how a lot of us get along um and then mark duplass's character almost immediately in the movie is diagnosed with terminal cancer and makes the decision because he lives in California, a state where you can do this to, uh, legally end his own life. Um, mm-hmm. his doctor prescribes him a lethal, uh, dose, um, that they then, I, and isn't the movie is never clear what part of California they, uh, live in, but, um, they have to, I, I guess I, I haven't looked up to know, to see if this is true, but, uh, they have a hard time finding, even though this is legal, they have a hard time finding pharmacies who stock and will fill hmm. the prescription. So they have to take a, uh, uh, so the, the middle chunk of the movie is them taking a road trip to, of all places, Solvang, a place that I know very, very well, yeah. where they stay at a hotel that I have stayed at hmm. uh, <laughs> and go to a bar that I have gone to uh, and go to an ostrich farm that I have gone to. It was like, and because the movie is like, like I, the color palette is kind of grayish like overcast so it didn't mm-hmm. seem like solving to me right but when they pull up to the ostrich farm i was like i think i know where they shot this and then they're like in downtown solving they're talking about there's a lot of windmills around here like uh mm-hmm. uh for those who don't know solving um is sort of briefly in sideways but no it's, it's a big part of sideways it's the city itself oh, i feel sure. like is not 
like the windmills aren't really that prevalent in in sideways because no, most of not, sideways no. most of sideways is like Los Olivos and like Bilton yeah. and yeah. like the sort of surrounding areas because solving is like but you do see solving in sideways and um, there is a moment where uh, Thomas Hayden Church uh, fleeing the husband of a woman he's been having sex with says uh, that he had to cut through an ostrich farm oh really oh, yeah. yeah that's funny um, uh, yeah so for those who don't know it's a it's a Danish themed it was that like it's history is that it actually was like a majority Danish town and still is in terms of like heritage, but a lot of Danes Mm -hmm. settled there. And then at some point, I guess the town kind of realized that was a thing. And so they architecturally started steering into that. And now it, it looks like a quaint Danish town out of a storybook, but, uh, Mm -hmm. it's where people go to drink wine. Um, and and my wife and I go there all the time. So, uh, anyway, that's not the point. The point is that, um, I think the performances here between Mark Duplass and Ray Romano are, are really touching. I think they're, they're both, they're, they're both really good actors. Um, especially they're both in the groove here, um, as kind of sad men. I mean, that's, it's weird that that's the group, but that, yeah, that's two actors that you think of as playing sad men, right? Yeah. Like, uh, even in like overt comedies, like everybody loves Raymond, he's still like kind of a sad guy. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot that's, that's, a, a, a effective about it. Um, especially because I think one thing I maybe should have expected, I don't know. I didn't expect that Mark Duplass is the one dying, but Ray Romano was the lead. And a lot of the, Sadness comes not from the fact that Mark Duplass is dying, but that when he dies, Ray Romano is not going to have a friend anymore. It's literally his old only yeah. friend in the world. In the world, there's a great scene where he like doesn't want. Ray Romano was like, "I'll hold on to the medicine until you're ready," and Mark Duplass is like, "No, I should hold on to the medicine." And they have this argument where Mark Duplass says, "I'm the dying guy," and Ray Romano says, "I'm the other guy." Yeah, so it's like a, it's an emotional emotional scene and it takes place in the lobby of a hotel that I've stayed at. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be your number one movie of the year because <laughs> yeah. just for relatability just purposes. I recognize yeah. Those, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to be a hypocrite in this next movie. Oh boy. Because I often talk about how I don't like documentaries that are just advocating for a certain thing that are like, are, are, polemics or you know uh uh, lectures but sometimes one comes along that i'm like yeah it's not great cinema but i so thoroughly believe that not only in what it's saying but that a lot of people should see it and would Mm -hmm. get a lot out of it and i watched a movie and i'm going to pronounce it according to the punctuation i watched a movie called hail satan oh Uh, have you heard of this movie Uh uh-huh uh so it's about the satanic temple who are the group um only some, I guess somewhat recently, like within the 21st century founded, Mm -hmm. um, as a satanic church or whatever that, that means. Um, but they're the ones you've heard of that are behind like the statue of Baphomet that they, um, tried to have put on the Oklahoma city capital grounds. Um, and, uh, uh, what was the, uh, well, the other big one, well, I'll talk about, here's the thing that, uh, like, I guess, they're they're almost like because the whole satanism thing is almost like kayfabe you know the re- the wrestling term like not breaking character oh sure yeah like yeah. even though the point is that they're not serious like 
the Satanic Temple and modern day Satanists in America don't are atheists. They don't. They don't actually Espousing a belief in Satan or an adherence to Satan is a way of kind of trolling the established uh, power. Mm. Um, and um, and um, I forgot what I was going to say. But uh, the, the point about the kayfabe thing is that, the yes, their stated purpose is we want this statue of Baphomet to be on the Oklahoma City right. uh, Capitol grounds. And Oklahoma City's way of dealing with that was to not put the statue there, but to take down the Ten Commandments statue, which is what they actually wanted of course. the whole time. So they may have publicly lost, but they won there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's another one where I can't remember if it was Phoenix or Tucson, where there was a, um, um, uh, a uh, city council that um, would start every meeting with an invocation. And most of them, because most of the members were Christian, most of the invocations were Christian, but they had a program where other religions could come and do an invocation. And so the Satanic Temple said, uh, yeah, we'll we'll do a Satanic invocation. And there was a huge uproar in the town. And now as a result, that city doesn't do the invocations before the council meetings anymore, which, again, was the actual goal. Um, and so I think, uh, yes, is it, it's directed by Penny Lane, who has made... Um, these kind of like uh, uh, fun. She did the R, R. Nixon documentary oh, yeah, uh, yeah. a few years ago. Uh, she did something else since then that um, people have heard of, and I forget what it's called. But um, so it's kind of it's, it's kind of like lighthearted and fun. But it basically has a point of view that I tend to agree with very strongly, which is that America is not and ought not be a Christian nation. I believe that we are founded as a secular nation and our strength is in being a secular nation and being, uh, you know, you go, you believe what you believe as long as it doesn't like, um, what's the thing you say, but the, the libertarian thing about like my right to swing my fist ends at your nose or something or the other way around. Yeah. The other way around. Yeah. Your yeah. right to swing your fist ends at, ends at my nose. That's, and that's, that, that, that's all they, that's all they want that they, this is the Satanism, uh, or this version of Satanism looks at a country that has from like post world war two on become more and more Christian in codified ways, like mm-hmm. saying under God and the pledge of allegiance, pledge of allegiance and having the, uh, in God we trust in our money and stuff like that, 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 um, that doesn't, I, 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 I thought that was just always the case, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and basically saying like, no, this is not our, this is not, it, so it's, it's really a patriotic movement, I think, or at least, right. the, uh, you know, that's, it's, the, it, it's, it's a movement that says, uh, that, um, we should all be free to be whatever religion we want and that we like to think that we are, but so many Judeo-Christian morals are codified into our laws and just our traditions and uh rights or whatever uh so i tend to agree with that mm-hmm. um is the movie great cinema no but uh it's a fun watch and uh uh i think it uh it would be worth a lot of people watching it yeah probably <laughs> yeah i mean it's that's the thing it's it's an argument in favor of religious freedom that is really what the argument is um 
but under that, it's an argument that we don't have as much religious freedom as we like to tell ourselves we do. Right. Um, and that sometimes, or in their view, the way to uh, uh, achieve a more uh, pluralistic, equal society is to be kind of a dick <laughs> and not in a way that hurts anybody because that's the other thing is that, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad I brought that up because they, they include, they have the Satan satanic temple. That's what it's called, right? The satanic temple, uh, this group started as it started in the way uh, that the black lives matter organization runs, which is that there's no central right governing, uh, thing, which I think has been bad for, black, I, believe the black lives matter but i think that you know there have been people who have acted in on behalf of black lives matter in ways that i don't agree with and therefore but there's no there's no body to say no that's not what black lives matter is satanic temple started the same way and kind of realized that that wasn't going to work hmm. um case in point they had a the head of their chapter in detroit at an official satanic temple event publicly called for the execution of Donald Trump and the satanic temple said that's not we are a non let's our tenants are non-violence right always and so they revoked her charter uh and um but she's uh interviewed extensively um in the movie uh I think it's really interesting I think people uh would get a lot out of it but uh yeah again it's not gonna make any lists for me it's not good right. cinema but it uh tickled my it tickled certain uh bones for me so I also have a documentary. This also is not going to make anybody's list. It <laughs> happened to pop up in my YouTube recommendations, which is odd because there's really not a whole lot. It's like, yeah, uh, I just watch a lot of Norm Macdonald videos on YouTube. So I don't know why YouTube recommended the documentary, the boy band con the Lou Pearlman story, which oh, is a wow. YouTube produced oh, documentary. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, directed by Aaron Kunkel, who really is not uh, much of a name. He's made a number of short films. Um, I thought you were like <clears throat> commenting on his actual name. Yeah. Aaron no, Kunkel, not, that's not gross. gross. Um, and uh, it interviews a number of people. Uh, uh, it's produced by Lance Bass, um, and he is featured very prominently. Uh, he's one of the talking heads, as is um, uh, his mother, because parents are a big part of, of this. Like these, a lot of these performers start out so young that their parents are there to try to to like encourage them, and in some cases. Uh, try to discourage them because like they seek out lawyers and all uh, every lawyer they talk to is like this is a terrible contract but it's probably the only contract you it's it's a contract that's in front of you and from there you could get more stuff which is kind of which is what happened with the vast majority of of I mean, there are boy bands in, included that I didn't even, I don't, I hadn't heard of uh, O-Town. I knew NSYNC, uh, NSYNC and uh, Backstreet Boys. And then there's... I've never, I can't think of anyone from O-Town, but there was also 98 Degrees, right? 98 Degrees. Because they that don't, was Nick Lachey. Yeah, they don't mention them in here, so I don't know if they were represented oh, by okay, was, okay. Lou Pearlman. Um, but it really is fascinating. But I usually, like, I tend to remember boy bands by the one or two who went to have careers after. Exa yes. And that's why I don't remember O-Town, because I don't know if any of them did right. anything. Well, and that's so they interview somebody from O-Town so I look him up and it's like oh he definitely had a career okay. since then but not not at like a Justin Timberlake or anything right. like that so um, it's, re it's, it's really interesting because it gets me to completely maybe not completely but it gets me to reconsider something that happened in my lifetime you know the boy band craze 
which was not aimed at us. And as a result, I, I, I remember, I remember some of the songs. I probably could not tell you which band sang like, I want it that way or I want you back. I don't remember which one it is. I feel like I want it that way is maybe a backstreet. I couldn't, I, yeah, I don't know that I could tell you. I thought when you said, when you started your sentence, yeah, I don't think I could tell you who sang. And I was like, I'm going to know. And then you said I wanted that way. And I was like, Oh, which one is that? Yeah. I don't even remember. What was the other one you said? Uh, now I don't recall. Yeah. I want you back. Oh, I want you back. Yeah, I want I you back. I yeah, yeah. I can't even. Uh, and then there was, goes. and then, uh, the song, uh, bye bye. That mm-hmm. I think is in sync. Okay. If I recall correctly. But anyway, so like, you know, for some people, this was like their whole lives. Yeah. You and I are struggling to remember <laughs> yeah. who's saying what. Um, and it's just something that I viewed as so disposable and sure enough, it was in many for people like us, but this this gets you behind. It's so fascinating in the information that it provides you. I mean, a lot of this is stuff that you can just look up on your own, but just the the people they interview, which is like a number of lawyers, uh, state attorneys, the musicians themselves, and you just realize like Lou Pearlman, he essentially owned and managed both Backstreet Boys and In Sync, and he actively encouraged a rivalry between them uh, because that actually created uh, higher buying uh, in their fan bases. Um, it's like I'm going to show how much I support Backstreet Boys uh, as opposed to In Sync by buying more Backstreet Boys as opposed to if they were all just friends. Right. Um, so it's just, so stuff like that is really interesting, and then his. His contract was the contract was so terrible in that so much stuff is provided for these bands and he and they just like work themselves to death. But they're also extremely famous and are getting all kinds of offers outside of that. But when it comes down to it, like Lance Bass tells this story that uh, he and the other members of NSYNC like sit down. Lou Perlman like puts in like it's their first official payment after like a year or two of working and bringing in millions of dollars for Perlman. And he like puts their first official paycheck in front of them. Mm -hmm. Like, and and so they all open it and it's a check for $10,000. And, and Lance, Lance Bass is like, he goes now, Hey, $10,000 is a lot of money. I don't mean to sniff (laughs) at it. He goes, but knowing how much we made for him yeah. for this to be our paycheck, it like turns out all the dinners that were provided for us were removed from, were like deducted from what was owed to us. Uh, but we didn't have a choice in that. So it's stuff like that. Wow. And so it's really interesting. And then you discover like Lou Perlman just like was just this very strange, uh, just everything about him was very very odd. And he was just, he had like a good thing going, uh, but then just wanted more. Like he just seemed to want to prove that he could succeed. So it was just like one scam after another. And then he eventually got caught. Um, and you find out, and they talk to like childhood friends of Lou Perlman, including (laughs) I, I, I was watching it on my phone while I was at the gym and, uh, a childhood friend of Lou Perlman says, it goes, it's like, we really bonded over our, our love of blimps. And <laughs> I, I out loud at the gym on the exercise bike, I just go, what? <laughs> like, 
because it just it's not a it's not the the word you think is going to end that sentence how yeah. could it be yeah and uh but then throughout but then throughout uh uh so like like the the met like the, there's the goodyear blimp but like the met life blimp okay that's lou perlman like he came up with that it's it's all he very strange he loves blimps you know hey i've got shelves full of riddler figures we all have our thing i didn't think anybody's thing was blimp much less two peoples um anyway the but does he insist that they're called dirigibles no they don't use the word uh much to my surprise but i will say the real so it's a it's a fascinating documentary on a lot of fronts but i think the real stroke of genius is that they interview aaron carter who it was the younger brother of Nick Carter, who was in Backstreet Boys, but then Aaron Carter himself had a huge sort of a solo. I think he was part of a band, but he had a solo career as well. Aaron Aaron Carter has had a a number of troubles over the last several years. Many of them drug related. Um, It got like, it got to the point because I took the liberty of looking this stuff up. uh, His brother, Nick actually had to like, get a restraining order against him. Like he's, he's had a lot of problems and he's the only one in the documentary, like during the, the interview portions, he defends Lou Pearlman and he, he, it feels like somebody defending a cult leader. And, and I don't, but like, these are things that have been proven and he is still saying like, Hey, none of us would have a career if not for him. And he actually gets like emotional, like to the point where he starts crying about like Lou did so many great things for me. And in that moment you're like, I'm, it, this is uncomfortable and I feel bad for Aaron Carter, but like, I'm so glad they included this because it's so easy to look back and say, well, this guy did all these terrible things. But it's like, but when it's someone who gets his hooks into you as a child and provides you these opportunities for many people as they get older, it's like, Oh, they're able to sort of suss that out. But for some people, maybe they, they aren't able to, which is one of the real evils of what he was doing. Um, so the film is available, com- uh, for free on, on YouTube. Um, I really recommend it again. It's not like a, it's not groundbreaking, but just it presents the information in a way that is clear and you're in, you're invested. And I really, really liked it. It's called boy. Band? It's called the boy band con, the Lou Pearlman story. Okay. Well, um, speaking of pop music, listen, Tyler. Okay. The last waltz. Yeah. The song remains the same. Yeah. Stop making sense. Mm-hmm. Add to that list. Homecoming, a film by Beyonce. Oh, okay. It is one of the greatest concert movies of all time. I think it already like deserves to be talked about in that company. Um, it's, uh, yeah, two hours and 20 minutes that does not let up, even though like, uh, unlike stop making sense, but like some of the other, uh, you know, um, uh, concert films, it is broken up by like backstage footage or there's a lot of footage of the rehearsal period, which mm-hmm. was eight months of rehearsing for, oh, for I'm Coachella. Sure. I'm sure. Um, uh, and yet the way that Beyonce and her co-director Ed Burke, uh, put it together, even when it's in between those things, it never loses the musicality. There's like, so with the show, there's performances of songs and then there are dance performances, some with Beyonce, but some of them without Beyonce, which are just for her to mm-hmm. do costume changes. And these 
in the movie, in the cinematic version of it, which this was clearly I, like, that's, I think how you justify, you know, uh, eight months of rehearsal for two concerts mm-hmm. is that you're making a movie, you know, committing it to film in the movie version. These backstage segments are just as much a part of the show as, as the songs and the, and the dancing. Um, it's also brilliantly, uh, edited in a way that I, there's something that we tend to stay, say about people who do, difficult public things like uh perform or uh, you know on stage or athletes where they we say oh they make it look easy and i think beyonce very, very is very much interested in not making it look easy and very much interested in you knowing how much work went into this mm-hmm. uh and how long it took um and uh uh there's also uh, it's it, so along those lines like not hiding the 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 strings of the mechanics um you know, um, I, I've never been to Coachella. <laughs> I don't think you've been. Oh, like three times. <laughs> it's just my but, crowd, David. But you know, they do, like, they didn't used to, but they do two weekends now, but mm-hmm. the same lineup both weekends. So Beyonce did the show twice. Yeah. But the costumes were different, or a different color. The first weekend was like all gold and the second weekend was all purple but she will in editing the songs use footage from both so oh like, i love that so yeah the, like the the dancers were all like well I'll spin around and suddenly they're wearing purple when they were wearing gold a second yeah, ago because that speaks to just like how tight the choreography yeah, is that you yeah. can actually make this work yeah oh that's great yeah it's uh it's it's an electric uh beautiful movie um and uh uh yeah there's a there's some moments of uh, comedy in it. There's a part cause, um, she, she talks about uh, in the backstage stuff. She was originally planning to do this the year before. And then when she got pregnant the second time with her twins, uh, you know, um, she couldn't do the rehearsal and then it was a difficult, um, labor that she had. And, um, so it was a long process to getting back into shape. And there's this great, uh, moment where she's like in her in the rehearsal space and she's like is fitting into the outfit for the first time and she's so excited that she can fit in and one of her I don't know if it was an assistant or someone working in the movie but another one was like let's FaceTime Jay her husband uh, Jay Z I don't mm-hmm. know if you know who's <laughs> I don't know if you know who's married in the celebrity world <laughs> that one but, I know uh, yeah and so uh, she's like so excited and they face FaceTime with with Jay Z and you see him go like oh that's great you know and then like they turn off and her assistant is like guys never get excited yeah it's nice to know that even at, the, at that high of a level it's yeah. still just like uh, honey yeah you look great I, yeah. I, I'm busy um, it, but it's yeah it's very sweet um, there are some emotional parts there are some uh, things that I, I don't know I, I don't want to spoil that uh, I guess if you care they would have already been spoiled for you um, in terms of the, how the concert goes but uh, I didn't know some of these things so um I can't wait to watch it again. I like, I asked my wife, um, I was like, cause we were, uh, watching TV or whatever. And I was like, do you want to watch homecoming? And she was mm-hmm. like, eh, I think that's something you better just watch it after I go to bed. <laughs> she didn't really care. And then the next morning I was like, Natalie, you have to watch homecoming. <laughs> so I don't know if she's going to, but, um, I loved it so much. One of the, one of the best concert movies ever. You know, here's one thing that I'll say. I don't like to speak, in gen- a joke is one thing. I don't like to speak in generalities, okay. especially when it comes to like the way men act. Uh-huh. Because what I will say is that, look, I'm deficient in most ways, <laughs> but 
I pride myself on noticing when people that I see regularly have something new and it looks particularly oh. good. I've commented on shirts you've worn. Yeah. I commented like the other day, Jen uh, was wearing a sweater that I didn't recognize and I thought looked really good. And I said, is that a new sweater? It looks good. She's like, uh, and she and her friends like will do like clothing swaps every once in a while. And yeah. they had just done one. And she's like, I got it yesterday. And so, and I did that in front of her employees and, uh, oh, so like she, good husband. so she told me yesterday, she's, uh, she told me later that, uh, she goes, yeah, they said like, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty neat. Uh, that yeah. I was so attentive. I think I'm good with new clothes. I'm not good with haircuts. I don't notice. Haircuts. I'm good with haircuts if I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in, in which case I keep it to myself. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, my wife will like be, will have been home for a while and be like, do you like my new haircut? And I'll be like, yeah. She's like, did you notice that I got a new haircut? No. Uh, yeah, I'm bad with hair for some reason. But yeah, if it's a, if it's a article of clothing that I've never seen before, I, I know yeah. that. We're good husbands. All right. All right. Oh, hang on now. What's you, well, I, sometimes I, sometimes I like to come on here and say like, eh, that movie everybody likes is dumb. Cause I'm a jerk like that. Sure. But sometimes I feel bad about not liking a movie that a lot of people like and a movie that I'm expecting to like. Oh, well, that second part, sure. Yeah. But, that other um, part, who cares? I, uh, so I watched Joe Talbot's The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Mm. And yeah, I mean, the two, the, the two main performances at the, at the center of the, of the movie, um, uh, Jonathan Majors is the supporting, oh, and the lead is named Jimmy Fails, and he's playing a character named Jimmy Fails. Uh, so Jimmy Fails and Jonathan Majors are, um, are, are terrific as to, uh, friends or I don't know, maybe they're a couple. I don't think the movie is, uh, uh clear about that. Or, do you know the premise of the last part? I know very like little that? about it. So Jimmy Fell's character, uh, he is, he doesn't have a place of his own. He lives with Jonathan majors and his dad played by Danny Glover, uh, who's blind in the movie. Um, but Jimmy Fells is obsessed with the house that he grew up in, that his, uh, grandfather built and that his, he was raised in his father was raised in, but his father played by Rob Morgan, um, showing up again. Uh, he was, uh, just in just mercy. We talked about, oh, okay, yes. um, uh, his father had some drug problems and as a result of that money problems and ended up losing the house. So Jimmy fails is obsessed with getting back to this nice, very nice house that he grew up in that is now, uh, in a more upscale, you know, by which I mean, gentrified neighborhood. Sure. There's an, uh, a couple of like, older white probably ex-hippies who live there now who are now like yuppie you know, like, of course not not ex-hippies like the tommy chong in colorado space version but the ex-hippies who are now like have corporate jobs but yeah. still think they're part of the revolution type um, yeah i went to uh i went to desert trip yeah uh, i know <laughs> yeah. i know what you're talking about yeah so um they live there and then they move out and the house is empty um and so he and jonathan majors decide to see what they can pull off in terms of squatters rights and like break into the house, but then live there, start paying the bills, start paying the taxes, um, keep the place up and see if that will, uh, work for them. Uh, I won't say whether or not it will. Um, uh, Finn Whitrock plays the, um, real estate agent who would much rather they not be there so he could sell mm-hmm. the house. Um, but I, I, I think I was nervous, like, right away with the movie just it feels like and i didn't i meant to look up if this actually is joe Talbot's first movie because it has that first movie feel hmm. that just like the camera's a little too uh the camera movements are a little too arch a little too self 
conscious. I would describe um, maybe a lot too subconscious at some points. Would uh, it make sense? Because I know exactly what you mean, and the way I would describe it, like certain, it could be musical choices, whatever. Eager. They just seem so <laughs> eager it, to please, to provoke. Like it's just there's no yeah, real nuance to, to, to it to to show. To show off, I think, is, yeah. is a little bit uh, of it. Uh, the movie reminded me of, and maybe it's because uh, both the main characters skateboard, but it reminded me of Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which mm-hmm. is a movie that I... This one's better than Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, it, that movie is <laughs> just uh, unwatchable to me. But um, it has a lot of that same feeling of, like, does the camera really need to be zooming on the ground and then, like, shoot up to a, like, right. low-angle uh, view of this uh, of, of the character? Um yeah, uh, I feel like there was something else I was going to say about the movie, but I just uh, I just wanted to like it so much because and maybe it is like a uh, um, because I think the movie's depictions of of gentrification are very relevant today, mm-hmm. especially in in San Francisco. Um, from what I understand, I've never been there, and increasingly it seems like a place that's no longer for me. Uh, if that makes sense, yeah. And so that stuff is definitely <laughs> relevant, but. Uh, the filmmaking is just too too on the nose. Um, oh, the other thing I was going to say is that the absolute best part of the movie, uh, because he's often one of the best parts of movies that he's in, is Mike Epps, who plays oh, sure. um, a friend of Rob Morgan's, um, and he has just some. Uh, there's some some lines uh, that I sw- I have to imagine. My, they just sound so Mike Epps that I, sure. I have to imagine he when he's. Jimmy Fallon's character is waiting for the bus to go take care of the house, do some gardening at the house. He's wearing like a plaid, like work type of like lumberjack type shirt. And Mike Epps is like, well, I'll give you a ride. And he's like, no, I'm taking the bus. And he's like, he's, <laughs> he's like, uh, uh, what is it? He's like, well, what are you doing with your father from good times looking shirt? Motherfucker. <laughs> and, then he goes, and then he goes, uh, he's like, no, I'm taking the bus. He's like, you gotta carry a shovel on the bus. Get your farming ass in the car. <laughs> Uh, that is a very Mike Epps type of line. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I love Mike Epps. I really do. Did you ever watch the very short lived uncle buck, uh, series they did with him? Uh, no. Uh, I remember the one with Kevin Meany. Oh yeah. Uh, from the nineties. That That's <sighs> Kevin Meany is also one of the funniest people to ever live, but that is not the character for him. No, that's not a, that's, no, Mike Epps was, uh, I don't like, uh, yeah, the new uncle buck was not a successful show in a lot of ways, but, uh, Mike Epps, I'm just such a fanboy when it comes to him. You know, it's odd that, that we arrived at Kevin Meany because for some reason in the last week I was in the mood to watch clips of him and, uh, and he was just Did such you watch a, the I don't care song. Of course. It's the best. It's uh, the best. but here's the thing that I remember. And I was like, and I looked it up to see if he did it anywhere else. And I couldn't find it anywhere. I remember in high school, every morning, um, when I would take the bus to school, uh, so like, I guess my freshman year, um, and the bus driver would like be playing like some morning zoo, uh-huh. and he was on it. I think you've told this story before. Yeah, yeah. And he was on it, and of course, just he would just launch into songs, like impromptu songs, uh-huh. and he was doing a show like on a Monday, like a Monday night. And the way, so when the, when the hosts mentioned, Oh, it's Monday night, Kevin Meany decided to sing the following song. Okay. And uh-huh. this, you might remember, and I'll, I'll try to approximate it. He, okay. he had a good voice. Uh, 
Eagle flying on Monday. Like that's how he sang it. Eagle flying. Yeah. And uh, oh, it was just delightful. I miss Kevin Meany. Um, okay, here's the one I, I said before we recorded that I think I think you've seen one of my movies, but now I'm not okay. even sure. Uh, so I finally watched Midsummer. Oh yes, I saw that. Okay, I really really liked it. Yeah. Um, and part, you know, part of and it, you did not you did not love Hereditary. Part of it that I didn't really like Hereditary very much, and I will say. To some extent, Midsummer has, I think Hereditary has a number of problems, but Midsummer shares one of the problems I have with Hereditary, which is that Ari Aster is, is developing a reputation for front-loading his movies with things that are so unspeakably horrific that it never feels quite like it lives up to it again. Right. Because the, th- the I, I don't want to go into spoilers for people who haven't seen it, but Florence Pugh, Florence Pugh has a... a uh, family tragedy that she mm-hmm. goes through that is the way that he like uh, it sounds trivial to say teases out but the way he draws out yeah. the lead up to her finding out is we're feeling what we're what she's feeling like that feeling when you feel like oh no something happened and then you're like trying to talk yourself out of like no I'm sure it's fine I'm sure it's fine yeah. and then like getting the confirmation that something terrible has happened like I mean, we both have loss in our families you know this the, that that feeling the way he draws it out and the way that once we find out what happened it's just so draining and so terrible yeah. and Florence Pugh is so great at acting that grief oh yeah um, that uh, um, I, uh, I I never I, I kept I once it once they get to Sweden and things get terrible I kept expecting them to be more terrible mm-hmm. but weirdly a lot of the awful things that happen in midsummer actually happen off screen. Yeah. Characters sort of disappear and then you see them and they're like, they've been disfigured or something, but you don't see the terrible things, uh, happening. You hear screams in the distance, which is itself kind of a reflection of that earlier scene that, you know, she's, she, well, and maybe she doesn't see it, but we see it. We, it's only ever the aftermath. Like, because uh, when you've lost somebody and maybe I, maybe I won't speak for everybody, but uh, I definitely often think it's like if I had been there, if I had been there to, you know, when not to get super specific when, well, no, this is very specific when my dad like collapsed on the garage floor while my mom was working well, I was in Chicago. There's no possible way, but it's like if someone had been there, oh, right. ideally me, then I could have called the ambulance faster or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a big element is, and an element of, of, of guilt for her is that like this feeling of I could have done more and I didn't. And now I've missed out and I'm only seeing the result. And so the film reflects that all throughout. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. There's also just the, the I mentioned the drawing out the dread, the, the sense of sustained dread, and also the visual sense, the way that it gets psychedelic. It has, I guess it's kind of like Color of Space, and it's in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the performances, all the characters are great. The, it's it's a funnier movie than Hereditary. Not that Hereditary doesn't have some funny stuff in it, yeah. but uh, Midsummer is funnier than Hereditary. And also I realized, um, and I, I keep comparing it to Hereditary just because that's, uh, uh, what I kept doing while I was watching the movie. Mm-hmm. The thing I realized that ultimately made me love it so much is that I don't, I, I feel like hereditary. I had this feeling when hereditary was over and I was like, what was that for? You know, why did I go sure. through all that? Whereas midsummer in a way, even though she goes through terrible things, I'm weirdly like, 
a little bit happy for her at the end, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, uh, it's not great what she does or what happens to her, but, right. but I feel like, I feel like she's gotten past something or gotten through something. And I, and so it actually feels, uh, arc like it feels like there's a bit of a, a catharsis at the end. And that's the thing is I actually feel like the, the smile at the end is a little bit gilding the lily. Like I, I wish that there was just a little, I wish there was more of a hint of it than an overt thing. Okay. I, 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 I liked it. I think because I wanted something big, okay. I was okay with it being overt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's really good. Um, William Jackson Harper, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is fantastic. I like that all the, all the American, especially the American men, but all of the Americans are shitty in their own ways. You know, <laughs> I, they may, there are certain choices like her boyfriend, the, and it's, it's not even just the way they react to her, but also the way they react to each other. Like when her boyfriend announces like what his thesis is going to be, uh. it's like, that is that, that fits that character so well yeah. because he's not like, he's not a bad person at least not in, like he's bad in the way that we were all bad in that at that time in our lives where it's just like, there's a laziness to him and a complacency to him that like yeah. the way he is in the relationship, the way he is clearly it, it, it shows that professionally he is this as well. That like, he's never going to go too far out of his comfort zone yeah. and he's never going to stretch himself too much. And so it's just like, it's frustrating and, and sometimes angering, but it's also, I find him, uncomfortably relatable. Uh, um, and, um, the other thing I liked, and I'll say this is if you're the, if you're especially spoiler reverse, maybe skip ahead. I'm not really going to give anything away, but, mm-hmm. uh, anything big away. But if you're one of those people who's very sensitive about this sort of stuff, um, I liked as much as I, I cause I just said all these characters are kind of <laughs> shitty. What I liked is the movie intentionally sidesteps the idea that they that what happens to them happens because they're shitty people because yeah the British characters are good people and that doesn't help them at all yeah no uh, yeah and it's I mean it obviously it's very Wicker Man esque the idea that just the idea of characters like just being you know lambs to the slaughter and all that mm-hmm. um yeah i really responded to to midsummer i really and i and i responded to hereditary but i think i actually like this one more um uh, it's tough i mean obviously they're it's the same director and i think he has similar sensibilities with both but i think each of them have strengths and and I won't even say weaknesses, but I think they have strengths just in different areas. And I think from an acting standpoint, I tend to be more in, in line with like hereditary, like some of those scenes with like Tony Collette are just really great. Um, whereas here the, the performances are a little bit more muted, but I think that's appropriate given the, the type of, of movie that it is. Um, yeah, I really like midsummer boy. What a great year for Florence Pugh. Yeah. Between yeah. this and fighting with my family and, and little, women. little women, like it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, um, all right. Finally for me. So I'll say the reason before with high flying bird that I was so like qualifying about how, like, I think there's a lot going on under its surface around its edges, but maybe I didn't connect with it because mm-hmm. of my own just personal experience of where I am in the world. The reason I was thinking about that because this is very similar, a movie that's very similar in that way that I did connect to because it's very much about people like me uh, in its own way. And that's Lynn Shelton's Sword of Trust. Did you see it? 
No, I that's the one with Mark Maron, right? Mark Maron, yeah, Angelina really... Bell, and Michaela Watkins, and yeah. Toby Huss has a large role, which is always good. Yeah, uh, Dan Bacadal, uh mm-hmm. shows up uh, in it, and um, it's a movie. It's a, not just a clever name; it is a movie about a sword, mm-hmm. uh, where Jillian Bell's grandfather uh, has passed away, and his in her in his will has given her a. This movie takes place in Birmingham, Alabama. It was shot in Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to our friend Steph, who lives in Birmingham. <laughs> um, and uh, um, so he he gives her this sword that's a Union sword that he has this. He wrote out this whole story about how the the South actually won the Civil War and has been buried, and this sword is part of the proof because it was surrendered to a Confederate. Uh, uh, general or whatever but the problem is that the guy wrote it when he was 98 years old and stricken with Alzheimer's and none of it makes any sense so then they just try to take it to a pawn shop to see what they can get for it mm-hmm. and Mark Maron's character finds out that there's this group of uh, um, like essentially like confederate racist conspiracy theorists online who will pay good money for this kind of artifact yeah. and so they basically it's him and his employee who I forget the n- name of um and then Jillian Bell and Michaela Watkins, who are a, a lesbian couple, um, kind of in a way going into the belly of the beast because they're like four or at least Mark Maron's employee is just kind of a, a, a dummy uh, mm-hmm. who's into less harmful conspiracy theories like flat earth type of stuff. Sure. Um, but uh, the reason it spoke to me is that it's on its surface. It's very slight. It's like 88 minutes. It's very funny. Um, and it's just got this silly story about them trying to get rid of the sword. And there's these like cartoonish, uh, r- racist characters. Um, it, on the surface, it's very slight, but I think it's, it's so much, uh, there's so much going on in the movie about, um, being a progressive or a liberal or just an open-minded kind person in an age when in a time in America, when, hate speech is becoming more and more public. You know, mm-hmm. you've got these multiple attacks, uh, uh, against Jewish people just in the past week and, um, shootings at churches. And you've got all these hateful things happening that are going on. And, but not, it's not just about being someone who is opposed to that. It's about being someone who, because of your own privilege, you have the luxury of ignoring it if you want. Mm-hmm. And so this is like, four people or at least three people and an idiot who are kind of forced to forcing themselves out of their own selfish greed yeah. to come face to face with a, uh, a type of person that they would mostly be happy just ignoring. You know, it's interesting. Uh, my exposure to Mark Maron as an actor is limited, mostly just glow, but he's great on glow. Right? Uh, he's great on glow. Yeah. And when I saw the trailer for, for this, I was just like, it's like, I know that I don't have much reason to say this, but that looks like the perfect role for him. <laughs> it's yeah. just like a guy who's just like, just going along, taking care of himself. And then suddenly it's like, ah, I got to do this now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. He's got a lot of very funny Mark Maron lines. And then Jillian Bell was always funny. Michaela Watkins. I would love, she's on the short list of actors that are just put him in like Michaela Watkins. Is yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like Toby Huss is maybe also on that list. Oh, sure. Um, uh, and uh yeah so I, I i really like i said it's it's slight but there's a lot going on and uh i really really enjoyed it okay all right One so more. my last film is robert eggers the lighthouse um ah. 
which I unsurprisingly adored. Um, the lighthouse is in my wheelhouse. Um, uh, I also like, I love the witch. I think I probably like the witch more than this. Uh, cause this film is, is slightly more inscrutable because, you know, the lighthouse, it's about, a, sorry, the, the, the witch is about a family. And it's like, okay, I can relate to that. But then the lighthouse, like I can also relate to coworkers that I didn't necessarily <laughs> enjoy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and I, I don't want to necessarily get too too deep into it. Um, but I, I just love, I just love this kind of. I mean, I'm reluctant to even call it a horror movie. I mean, I wasn't necessarily scared. Yeah, there I, are some I, scary parts. There yeah. are scary parts, and and there's just kind of this deep sense of of dread and unease, um, and just this, and and of course, a, an extreme bitter loneliness, mm-hmm. uh, at the core of it. Um, and just, and all of those are my jam as long as I'm using terms I don't like to use like wheelhouse and jam. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's just, I, I, I just love the, the pacing of it. I love how patient it is. Um, I love the way it's shot and I don't simply mean from an aspect ratio standpoint or from a black and white standpoint, just the framing, uh, everything is just so deliberate and it speaks to the, the lives that these guys live that even though they themselves are kind of sloppy, uh, in the way they take care of themselves and the way they relate to each other, the stuff they have to do is very by the book. They mentioned that early in the film that there is a, they don't use the word manual, but there's like, this is how things mm-hmm. work here. Yeah. Um, there's a very, there's kind of a regimen, uh, right. Regimen there. Um, but, yeah. uh, but and so as a result, because they have just this is what we do, it, it allows them to. They don't have to think about the routine, which then kind of allows their minds to go to these yeah. crazier places. Um, like I remember many years ago when I worked at uh, Blockbuster, um, there would be like every Monday. That's when we would move. Uh, or no, every Tuesday movies would be moved off the shelf and converted to previously viewed, Mm -hmm. uh, and put on sale. And there'd be every Tuesday, there'd be like 50 or 60 of these movies, which meant I would have to like scan. So you'd have to like scan them and reprint off these tags and then put them on the shelves and all that kind of thing. It was an all day, uh, task. And I remember I always lobbied for it because I'm doing one thing yeah, all I day. Like yeah. I don't have to deal with customers. This is all I'm doing this day. And it allowed me to think. It allowed me to like focus on other things and just kind of zone out of this. Yeah. And then wherever my mind went, uh, it's like, all right, now I can uh, process my life. So in, that's the, that's, it's weird. That's what I was thinking when I saw this. That like These guys, they have a routine. They have expectations, which allows their minds to go to the dark and sad and f- scary places that uh, that is in some ways inherent in the the environment that they're occupying right now. Uh, and the, I love the performances. Robert uh, Robert Pattinson continues to yeah. surprise me. Um, I shouldn't be surprised. I'm not surprised by the fact that he took the role, but what he does with the role. Um, because I thought he would play him as just like 
as just kind of moody and morose and quiet. And he is that, but there also is a judgmental aggression to him. Yeah. Um, and well, speaking of aggression, <laughs> I told him, I was telling my wife, I was like, I think you'd like it. And I was like, Oh wait, you might not like it because there's an animal who dies in the movie. <clears throat> Uh, and she was like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't like that. And I was like, but it's a seagull. And she was like, oh, I could maybe watch that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, and that's something that I that I do like about, uh, I think of it, I think of Ari Aster and Robert Eggers as like being similar in their sensibilities insofar as they're going to, whatever story they have concocted, they are going to follow it all the way down the line. Right. And if that means horrendous imagery uh they're gonna do it and they're not gonna necessarily shine shy away from it um obviously willem dafoe is delightful uh-huh. um in, in a way that doesn't like man that character is over the top but at no point did he feel like a cartoon character to me he felt like even an though actual, he sounds like a goddamn parody of course of course <laughs> yeah and so uh but i still just like strange as it sounds and maybe it doesn't sound that strange watching that i'm just like oh if they ever remade jaws he could be a pretty good quint he'd have to tone it down obviously uh-huh, yeah. but um but i that's and that just speaks to what i love about willem dafoe is that no matter what character he plays he will find a way to make it whether it be jesus or count orlock uh in shadow of the vampire like he will find a way to make that character relatable and human even if the character is ridiculous as he so often is yeah um you know a character <laughs> a character that farts that much right. openly and doesn't even bother, uh, apologizing or saying, excuse me. Um, that's, there's a humor to it, but it also just seems like somebody's grandpa or something like that. Uh, so I really, really liked it. Um, and just, and, and the, the, I, I think the sound design is marvelous as well because these are guys whose lives is just, is, is constantly being bombarded with sound. I mean, I guess everybody's is a little bit, but just that whether it be the foghorn or just the ocean itself or the echo, the echoing quality of yeah. the space they occupy. Yeah. I just, it's such a fully realized movie. Um, and I, it's very much my kind of thing. But I did want to, I feel like this is something to, that could maybe be its own episode and maybe it was its own episode at some point. I don't remember. Um, you know, the, I don't have a mind for aspect ratios, like actually the numbers. Um, so what is this aspect ratio? What would you? 1.19 to one. Okay. It's, uh, um, movie scope, I think is the, uh, it's, it's a 1920s, uh, aspect ratio. All right. So. You know, more filmmakers are employing this because um, I remember with. Uh, well, I don't it, know that uh, that many filmmakers have employed one point one nine. Well, just but this like is, a, this is narrower. Yeah, it is. It definitely it's yeah. closer to square than yeah. Uh, although it tricks your eye because it looks taller. It does because it's, it's actually it actually is wider than it is tall. But your eye yeah. just thinks I don't know uh, for some reason the one point three three to one looks like a square to us mm-hmm. even though it's four to three um and so 1.19 is a little bit closer to an actual square but actually looks taller well i think this is also i think this film is also shot with a vertical sensibility um, oh, which sure. makes sense for yeah. lighthouse purposes but also like the stairs yeah, movie and, tone movie tone um but either way like these these you know narrower uh aspect ratios i think i'm thinking of something like first reformed um 
which is one three three. I feel like it's something that is happening more, uh, and that's not necessarily something that. Oh, uh, I didn't see it, but a ghost story also uh, does that. Yeah, um, it's not something that inherently bothers me, but I do. I, I bristle at the idea of it because mm-hmm. part of me feels like that it's just almost too precious. Uh, even though I love the way, uh, first reformed looked and I love the way this looked. Um, and, but invariably it, it's, I find myself thinking like, okay, they made a decision that is uncommon. So they undoubtedly did it for a reason. And it's not to just, it's, it's probably, in a film like this, it's probably more than just to evoke an earlier time of filmmaking. I think it's also meant to be a little bit claustrophobic and all that sort of thing. But, um, I, the, the decision itself is, is neutral, but, uh, I definitely have an initial response, uh, whenever I find out a, that a movie is doing that. Um, do you, I, uh, I kind of love response? it because okay. I, I think it's just embracing the fact that like, Rigid aspect ratios were kind of dictated by the presentation format, which right. is that they were there were only so many uh, like uh, projector like right. lenses. Where you want to, I don't know, is lens the right word? Whatever that uh, there's only so much you could do with a projector. Yeah. Um, but now that everything is digital, you're free to kind of have whatever aspect ratio you want. And so right. it started with, uh, yeah, embracing old fashioned aspect ratios like one three three. Or one six six. I'm trying to think what was uh, something recently was in one six six. I can't remember what it was. Um, but uh, now you've got like uh, well, we mentioned Midsummer. That's two to one, mm-hmm. uh, which is a uh, a more common has become a common TV. Uh, I, I feel like for, I think for dumb reasons, like shows like House of Cards started being two to one. Sure, I think because. They realized, okay, everybody has TV screens that are 60 by 9 now. People associate letterboxing with prestige. And so now there'll be a black bar. And so we're going to do two to one. Yeah. But Midsummer, I think, you know, uh, does two to one. I think it uses it well. We mentioned. I love the cinematography of Midsummer. Me too. Um, we mentioned. Now, High Flying Bird, I think, is a traditional scope aspect ratio. But Steven Soderbergh's last movie or two movies ago, Unsane, mm-hmm. 156 to one. Because that's what your iPhone is. It was shot on oh. the iPhone. Which High Flying Bird was also shot on the iPhone, but with uh, lenses. Uh, Interesting. But um, yeah, so people are, I think, are just using whatever aspect ratio they want now, and I kind of yeah. like that freedom. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not oh, opposed I, to it. oh, I'm definitely uh, fine with them doing anything they want. I think there's just something. I. It's weird. It's. It's. I feel like it's a. It's an older instinct in me, like one that I, for the most part, have gotten past. But the the choice to to limit what the audience can see. It, like we're so accustomed to like a wider oh, yeah, screen okay. that encompasses more. Um, and it could just be that for in the same way that like the black bar is meant prestige. It's like that because of VHS, I was so accustomed to this yeah. that I might associate a for all intents and purposes, square image with I'm missing out on something. It's like, well, no, the director yeah, no, is, is, a cus- is, you know, uh, customizing the image to this aspect ratio. But, yeah. um, but yeah, I just, it's weird how stuff like that, uh, I remember seeing manifests itself in the theater. I went to see, Oh, what is it called? The wrestling documentary. It's like Mick Foley, but it's other beyond the mat, beyond the mat. That's it. I saw that in the theater mm-hmm. and it was, I think shot 
video probably with a VHS, like a home video release in mind. And it was, yeah. it was four by three. It was the first time I ever ever seeing that in, yeah. the, in a theater. Did you have a response to Did you have a reaction to that? Uh, yeah, I thought it looked like it wasn't theatrical, but, uh, yeah. but I think I've gotten past that now because, largely because I've seen so many older movies now that are four by three. Yeah. So that aspect ratio seems more classy to me in a way. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, I, cause I saw first reformed in the theater and it takes a moment to realize they're not going to, you know, I don't mean to, to sound so limited in my thinking, but they're not going to utilize the whole screen. Um, well, that's why certain people, and I'm not one of them, uh, get hung up on masking. Because the idea sure. is that yeah. the curtain should come in to fit. So there shouldn't be any blank screen. Right. Um, and you still get that at uh, nicer theaters or rep- repertory theaters. But a lot of chains just don't mask anymore. Yeah. Um, which is why one of my favorite things. Uh, the the Scotiabank 14, where they do the press screenings at, uh, press and industry screenings at TIFF. Mm-hmm. It's a chain multiplex theater and they don't mask which yeah. is weird for the kind of artsy movies that you're watching there especially because i saw not that this is an especially artsy movie but i saw kursk or as it was later re- renamed the command with the thomas vinterberg russian submarine okay. movie which is a movie that starts 185 when they're on the on land mm-hmm. and then once the once the movie goes underwater with the submarine it becomes scope oh. but because there's no masking the first, the prologue of the uh, movie is a little 185 picture inside a bigger 185 screen. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think, yeah, the, the troll in me, uh, the, or the, the Satanist in me, uh, was, yeah. was like, uh, oh, I would love to see some of those uh, masking snobs <laughs> react to this. <laughs>